Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 104, and today I want to talk a while about part one, I'm calling, of revival history. This is my attempts at going th- through time to discuss particular moments in which God visited a people and moved upon them mightily, powerfully. Uh, to the glory of his name. And so my hope in this is, even though it is just a scratching of the surface, uh, I'm casting a wide net in hopes that the teaching will stir a hunger and a curiosity for what God has done across time for you to search and to study the deeper specifics of what each of these moves of God entailed And not just to inspire you, but also to provoke in you an expectation for God to do it again. Uh, Not not so much an exact replica, but his sovereign moving in upon man and doing a mighty work uh, tangibly that is is all-consuming. And as we walk through the specifics of these and, and, and the specificness nature of, of what they entail, I believe that we'll understand more of what, what this looks like. You may have never uh, studied specific revivals. Some of these you may have never even heard of. So that's actually my hope is that it brings it to knowledge for you. Um, or for those of you who have a working knowledge of some of these moves of God that it would uh, inspire you and move you. So uh, that's my hope in this. Now, we actually can find reviving moves of God through the biblical narrative that we often don't consider revivals, especially in light of our culture's Western-centered reality that puts the United States at the center of time and importance. But in fact, biblical events like Jonah and the preaching of repentance in Nineveh uh, throughout the book of Ezra, uh, Judges, Nehemiah, even New Testament John the Baptist, Samaritan woman at the well in Sychar, Paul's missionary journeys, many others, Revival doesn't have its beginning in the United States. Uh, In fact, we do have, we have a footprint in particular revivals, but, but it doesn't have its beginning in, in our, in our nation. Um, When many of us think of revival, and again, I'm speaking from um, the, the Western mentality here uh, in the United States, because I, I know there's, I have many people who listen um, outside of the United States and other countries, and, and I'm thankful for that. But from from our perspective here, when we think of revival, many people instantly uh, are drawn into the starting point of the First Great Awakening. And while this is a major and impacting revival, it isn't the first by any means. As I mentioned before, even in the biblical narrative, there's revivals that are occurring, even present in the Old Testament. 
way before we are more in our modern day uh, formation. Now, the first revival that I start this discussion teaching uh, with is the Moravian revival of 1727. Now, it only officially occurs a few years before the First Great Awakening, which happens in the 30, 1730s to 1740s. It is, this Moravian revival is one of, of significance to me. It's one of my favorites that has impacted my life. And so I want to be sure that its history is told or touched on in this presentation. So there are some terms that would be, I think, a benefit for us to define as we make our way through this information. Now, what is revival? Also, what is awakening? What is reformation? See, just over 200 years prior to the first great awakening, we can read of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation in Germany. That's in 1517. Uh, a preacher named Greg Laurie uh, defines awakening as, quote, God sovereignly pouring out his spirit and it impacts a culture. Revival is when the church comes back to life, when the church becomes what it was always meant to be, end quote. Oftentimes, these words, revival, awakening, reformation, they're used interchangeably, either by mistake or intentionally. There are, however, differences between these words that need to be understood so that we can get a more clear understanding and more appropriately use these important terms. Now, uh, for those listening to this by way of audio, there's no visual here, but, but I've made a simple flow chart. And this flow provides a visual of events that I believe gives us a picture in some of these subtle differences of our words, revival, awakening, and reformation. Now, we all begin in an unredeemed state apart from Christ because of sin. So, I've, I titled this box, Humanity in Unredeemed State. Now, as we move through life in that state, God extends grace and touches a people with awakening. This is the next box, awakened to life in Christ. Now, Christ is central in this awakening because it is in him alone that we are made alive and awakened from our slumber of death in sin. Now, notice that the word itself, awaken, it implies a first event. If the word reawaken was used, we could then imply that this would be a second or higher event. So as we are awakened to life in Christ, we move next on the journey to the next box I title, Passionate Pursuit of God. Now this is unique but similar event and journey for each person. A call to live a life fully devoted to the obedience of Jesus by the leading of the Holy Spirit. This connects us similarly, but how that expresses itself in our own unique calling and anointing, even gifting, it makes it specially built for each of our unique persons 
in Christ. Now, the next box takes us to, not, I would say not all people, not all people get to this box, but through the course of time, we may fall into a condition of the heart and the soul of spiritual lethargy and slumber. Now, we may have grown cold and calloused and lacking in our outflow, most likely due to the neglect of our inflow. Can you picture that? Our outflow is, is affected because we have neglected our inflow. And that is through uh, prayer and fellowship with God, through the reading of the word, and through hearing his voice as he speaks to us. See, happenings, events, distractions, busyness, and the cares or concerns of life may have grown up and choked out our spiritual growth and discipline, which strains the devotion of our hearts to Jesus alone. Simply, our desire for God and the things of God have grown flat and without effect. This is that place of spiritual lethargy and slumber. It is in this state that we must have revival. So this word, revival, notice the beginning letters, R-E, re, implies a bringing back to life. To revive someone is to bring them back to life from death. And not just, not just from death to life, because that is actually signified by awakening. Reviving is being brought back to life from a deadened state. A simple way I could say it is this. Awakening is first life and revival is second and onward life. You see, revival may happen in multiple ways or in multiple times. Awakening targets the dead lost and revival targets the sleeping saved. Both are acts that are extended by God, received to humanity, enacted by the Spirit, which then affects ripples across throughout time and generations. The next word that we want to look at or think about is reformation. This is the third word of our three, uh, awakening, revival, and reformation. Now, when I think of the word Reformation, I immediately think of Martin Luther, the German Catholic priest who lived in 1483 to 1546. While others throughout time have given their lives and work to Reformation of various kinds, Martin Luther is likely the most widely recognized in our culture who gave rise to uh, Protestantism, which is a diversion from Catholicism. In biblical language, when I think of Reformation, two scriptures come to mind regarding this idea of Reformation. Romans 12, 2, which says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The second verse that comes to my mind is Jeremiah 18, 3, 4 which says, 
quote, this is Jeremiah speaking, so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at the wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Both scriptures here to me encapsulate this idea of reformation. It is a taking from one kind to another kind, either through a neglect on our part or by a revelation of our, I'll call this, not there yet state. God reforms a people who he is in the process of forming. Okay, so this takes us now to our uh, specific discussion of revival history in the Moravian Revival of 1727. So again, no visuals here for my listeners, but um, I have a picture here of uh, the Hernhut community who is f- uh, that's formed for this Moravian community and as we will later discover, um, even a broader community uh, who are refugees. Now, we have here refugees fleeing from the country or the region of Moravia. They were fleeing Catholic persecution, and they escape, and they leave Moravia, which is located in what is present-day Czech Republic. They make passage into Saxony, Germany, to the estate of a young, wealthy Christian noble named Count Nicholas Zinzendorf, I love that name, who takes them in and gives them asylum. Now, in May of 1722, at the age of 22, Zinzendorf purchased the estate of Berthelsdorf from his grandmother. Now, for those who know better, I apologize ahead of time for my pronunciation of these words. They're very difficult. So if you know better, I do apologize. Um, so he purchased this estate from his grandmother. Uh, it's, it's the estate of Berthelsdorf. He intended to make this a place for the preaching of the gospel to the peasants, and he installed John Andrew Roth as the pastor of the village church. Now, as religious refugees from Bohemia, Moravia, and Cilicia, fleeing the Roman Catholic persecution, as they moved into the area, Zinzendorf welcomed them to construct a new village about two miles to the southwest of Berthelsdorf. And this location was given the name of Hernhut. Now, Hernhut means the Lord's watchful care, or it can also mean the Lord's protection. The construction of Hernhut began on June 17, 1722, with the first felling of the trees. The Moravian refugees considered themselves the spiritual descendants of Bohemian reformer John Huss. Now, something that would be fascinating or interesting for you to do on your own. We don't have time for it here today, but uh, John Huss has quite a story. You would uh, do yourself good to check him out. But uh, 
they they considered themselves spiritual descendants of that bohemian reformer john huss h u s now for several generations these people had been seeking a place of escape from intense persecution many moravians by this point had already died for their faith and others had been imprisoned and tortured from 1722 to 1727 this small community in Hernhut grew to 220 people, including 87 children living in 30 different homes. So that's, think about that, that's five years, and it grew to 220 people and 30 homes. That's, that's pretty staggering. Now, the community being made up of a number of Protestant sects, we're talking Baptists, Presbyterians, Reformed, Lutherans, uh, even uh, Schwenkenfelders, uh, say that five times fast, and also Moravians. Such a big group of doctrinal distinctives, they were struggling to live t together in unity and in harmony. They were struggling through dissension, bitterness, judgmentalism. Each group their doctrinal stances were breaking apart the unity. So Zinzendorf wanted to work to address these conflicts. He began visiting homes for prayer. Take note of that. He, to address the conflicts, he took the initiative to enter into prayer. Then he called the people together to study the scriptures as it pertains to living together in unity. Following prayer and the study of the scriptures, there was an agreement drawn up called the Brotherly Agreement. Now, this was a document with rules that those living in the community would agree to, and it was signed by the members living there on May 12, 1727. So take note of these dates it's good to kind of keep time frames so you can understand. A lot of times we, we, when we are discovering these things, it just seems like, even as we read the Bible, it seems like it's just this boom, it gets there and it happens. But really there's this passage of time that occurs. So it's important to keep that in mind, especially encouraging in our own lives when we realize that things don't automatically happen like sometimes it seems like it does whenever we read of it. But... Um, again, for the sake of time, we don't have, but you could check out online this brotherly agreement and what it is they signed. Um, so you can just kind of catch up on that and see what that looked like. But that was signed by all the members living there in agreement May 12, 1727. Now, the brotherly agreement or covenant, it brought a measure of unity and the debates did stop, yet they still didn't have, quote, fervent love for one another, 1 Peter 4, 8. So on July 16th, many of the community began praying together as never before. So what do we have? May, June, July. So about two months, a little over. So then they began praying together as never before. And that was July 16th. On August 5th, 
1727, Zinzendorf and about 14 others spent the night in prayer, seeking God for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it was said that at midnight, quote, great emotion prevailed, end quote. It was on August 6th, so a day later, that an 11-year-old girl, her name's Suzanne Cunell, had an encounter with God after spending three days in prayer following her personal revival and her testimony being given to other children, more children stepped into the revival that she was experiencing. So this is an account of what occurred on August 10th while the pastor, member of the Berthelsdorf Church, John Andrew Roth, this is an account of what occurred August 10th while he was conducting a meeting or gathering at about noon in the village of Hernhut. So listen to what he had to say. Uh, quote, while Pastor Roth was holding the meeting at Hernhut, he felt himself overwhelmed by a wonderful and irresistible power of the Lord and sank down into the dust before God. And with him sank down the whole assembled congregation in an ecstasy of feeling. In this frame of mind, they continued till midnight, engaged in prayer and singing, weeping, and supplication. End quote. Did you catch the math there? Remember, from noon until midnight, 12 hours. On Wednesday, August 13th, 1727, the community met in the church in Berthelsdorf where Zinzendorf preached a sermon about the cross and the Lamb of God. And then, as the congregation was about to take communion, quote, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, end quote. It was such a powerful visitation of the Holy Spirit that many referred to it as a, quote, Moravian Pentecost, end quote. Of that occasion, a Moravian historian documented, quote, we saw the hand of God and his wonders, and we were all under the cloud of our fathers baptized with their spirit, the Holy Ghost came upon us, and in those days great signs and wonders took place in our midst. From that time scarcely a day passed, but what we beheld his almighty workings amongst us. A great hunger after the word of God took possession of us so that we had to have three services every day, 5 a.m., 7.30 a.m., and 9 p.m., Everyone desired above everything else that the Holy Spirit might have full control. Self-love and self-will as well as all disobedience disappeared and an overwhelming flood of grace swept us all out into the great ocean of divine love. End quote. Zinzendorf commenting also on this moment said that it was, quote, a sense 
of the nearness of Christ bestowed in a single moment upon all the members present, and it was so unanimous that two members at work twenty miles away, unaware that the meeting was being held, became at the same time deeply conscious of the same blessing." The Savior permitted to come upon us a spirit of whom we had hitherto not had any experience or knowledge. Hitherto we had been the leaders and helpers. Now the Holy Spirit himself took full control of everything and everybody. End quote. Though we have no detailed records of what actually occurred on that Wednesday morning in the Berthelsdorf church. We do have one record that says that after they left the church at noon, quote, the people hardly knowing whether they belonged to earth or had already gone to heaven, end quote. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on August 13th did not end with its fading memory or it being a mere emotional encounter with God. It resulted in enhanced passion for God's glory to spread. And it began through, notice this, increased prayer and worship. After August 13th and until the 26th, of that month, there was a powerful movement of prayer that commenced among the children. One account reads like this, quote, There was such a movement in the fellowship that the bushes on the Hutberg Hill were filled with brothers, sisters, and children day and night who on their knees or prostrate prayed, wept, and sang, end quote. Another eyewitness said, quote, The spirit of prayer and supplication at that time poured out upon the children so powerful and efficacious that it is impossible to give an adequate description of it in words. End quote. Following these uh, evidential workings of the Holy Spirit, Zinzendorf heard the Lord speak to him, telling, in, telling him that the fire on the altar must never go out and that the community must respond to Christ's great sacrifice through nonstop prayer day and night. On August 27, 1727, a 24-hour prayer ministry was started involving 24 men and 24 women, with one person committing to prayer one hour every day. This was called the, quote, hourly intercession, end quote. The number of those praying grew to 77, with them praying in rotations every day, and this lasted for, hear this, 100 years mind-boggling. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. 24-hour prayer, and it lasted for 100 years. The times of prayer weren't always in one location, but there were those that would join together with others and pray in twos or threes at different locations. Now, the boys and girls, like the adults, had a similar plan of praying in rotation. 
Zinzendorf met weekly with these intercessors to share prayer points to keep them focused on what to pray for. These prayer points were primarily kingdom-focused rather than praying for individuals' needs. They would pray for communities and missionaries that the gospel would go forth in power. And again, no visuals for you, but the mission stations that were established by the Moravian Church during the 1700s, it's far-reaching across the world. It's, it's hard to fathom the expansive effects of the mission efforts by these hungry men and women who were seeking to carry out the purposes of God in mission. Now, even though the English Baptist missionary, William Carey, he carries the title of, quote, father of modern missions, end quote. By the time Carey departed for his missions ministry in India in 1793, the Moravians had already spent 60 years sending out over 100 missionaries from Hernhut. In fact, the Moravians had sent out over 100 missionaries in only 25 years, beginning in 1732. What makes this even more remarkable is that the congregation of Hernhut never exceeded 300 people. The ripples through time will have lasting impacts even in our day and time. What power there is in a praying man or woman boy or girl. Now, the Moravians of the revival had great influence on the emergence of the Methodist denomination, as well as on the ministry of George Whitfield. In 1736, John Wesley and his brother Charles sailed to America as Anglican missionaries, and during the trip, there they witnessed the calm assurance of the Moravians during a terrible storm. A company of the Moravian immigrants were on this vessel, and during this storm they faced the danger of shipwreck. John Wesley wrote in his journal, quote, At seven I went to the Germans. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior, of their humility. They had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the English would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay, saying, quote, it was good for their proud hearts, end quote, and, quote, their loving Savior had done more for them, end quote. And every day had given them occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move, if they were pushed, struck, or thrown down, they rose again and went away, but no complaint was found in their mouth. Here was now an opportunity of trying, whether they were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung on. 
I asked one of them afterwards, Were you not afraid? He, he answered, I thank God, no. I asked, But were your women and children not afraid? He replied mildly, No, our women and children are not afraid to die. Back in England on May 3rd, 1738, Charles Wesley, even though he had been an Anglican, placed his faith in Christ following a conversation with the Moravian Peter Bollier. A few weeks later, John Wesley also placed his faith in Christ. The Moravian Peter Bollier had established the Fetter Lane Society in London. It was on December 31st, 1738, that about 60 of these Moravians who were joined by John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, and several other Methodists and Anglican priests met together for a watch night service. Writing about that watch night service, John Wesley remarked, quote, about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many cried for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be Lord. End quote. People from throughout Europe made trips to Hernhut, seeking to be saved or to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and fire. John Wesley's visit to Hernhut was typical of thousands. Commenting on his visit, Wesley wrote, quote, God has given me at length the desire of my heart. I am with a church whose conversation is in heaven, in whom is the mind that was in Christ, and who so walk as he walked. I would gladly have spent my life here, but my master called me to labor in another part of his vineyard. End quote. As occur in all great revivals, the Moravians have been known for the writing of many hymns and spiritual songs, Count Nicholas Zinzendorf himself writing about 2,000 of them. One of the great results of this were hymns and spiritual songs. No church, in comparison to its numbers, has ever produced as many hymns as the Moravians. For well over two centuries, now we have been singing their hymns. Most of their hymns are prayers to Christ. Many of them are expressions of joy and gratitude for what He has done. In them they portray His sufferings for sinners on the cross. His shed blood is central theme of their songs. Practically all their hymns are hymns of their own personal experiences of salvation and spiritual blessing. And what is more natural? than for the heart to break out in glad praise and love to the one who has done so much. The other outstanding result of the Moravian revival at Hernhut was a vision of worldwide missions. Quote, This small church in 20 years, says Dr. Warnick, called into being more missions 
than the whole evangelical church had done in two centuries. End quote. That this great missionary fervor was the direct result of the mighty outpouring at Hernhut, and that a new and unquenchable passion controlled the entire movement is most strikingly set forth by Count Zinzendorf himself. Quote, Urged by love to every nation of the fallen human race, we will publish Christ's salvation and declare his blood-bought grace. To display him and portray him in his dying form and beauty, be it our aim and joyful duty. End quote. Again, their devoted leader, Count Zinzendorf, imparts to them his vision in the following words. Quote, I am destined by the Lord to proclaim the message of the death and blood of Jesus, not with human wisdom, but with divine power, unmindful of personal consequences to myself. End quote. But it is in Zinzendorf's last words spoken on his deathbed that we get the real spirit of Moravianism. Quote, I am going to my Savior. I am ready. There is nothing to hinder me now. I cannot say how much I love you all. Who would have believed that the prayer of Christ, quote, that they all may be one, end quote, could have been so strikingly fulfilled among us, I only asked for the first fruits among the heathen, and thousands have been given me. Are we not as in heaven? Do we not live together like angels? The Lord and his servants understand each other. I am ready. End quote. He died at the age of 60 and was buried at Hernhut. More than 4,000 from all parts of the world followed his body to the grave. In the West Indies among the North American Indians, on the cold, bleak shores of Greenland, far away in dark, benighted Africa, as well as in South America and practically every country in Europe and Asia, the Moravians planted the cross and won thousands of souls to Jesus Christ. And all of this, let it be remembered, was some 50 years before the modern missionary movement was launched by William Carey, who in turn got his inspiration from the Moravians. Thus, as in the days of the early church, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and immediately, quote, they went everywhere preaching the word, end quote. Acts 8.4 Witnesses unto Christ because they were, with Paul, determined to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified, they were immensely successful. They preached the blood to the most savage tribes, and multitudes were convicted and converted. It was the spirit expressed in their leader's great motto that inspired them. Quote, I have one passion, exclaimed Zinzendorf, it is Jesus, Jesus only, end quote. This great move of God originated out of fervent and persistent prayer. 
Take note of that. Hearing of these accounts and happenings moves us to ask God, do it again, Lord. As you hear this in your heart, who would say yes to this life of consecrated prayer unto God to move about our people and change the trajectory of our disintegration of our spiritual condition? It doesn't take many, but it will take all. We will see this revival fire spread into the next lecture that we will enter into next time on the first great awakening. I thank you for taking the time joining me on this part one. I pray that it was a blessing and that God uses it to inspire you and provoke you into pursuing God and and petitioning him to pour out his spirit among his people that we may see and experience him like never before, that we would be awakened to life and stimulated to hope in spreading and sharing that good news of the gospel. I bless you and I thank you. And until next time, God bless. If it means that I'm close to you, I would trade a million lifetimes for a